Uh, Revelation chapter 22. Apparently, Curtis taught chapter 21 while I was gone and stood up here and said that. I said it was okay. I don't know about that. No, I, I, I said he could teach for me. It's, it's one of the better chapters as far as it's like you got the good things, right? We've been talking about the judgment and the wrath of God and, and all these um, difficult things to hear. And then we get to like the Revelation chapter 20 and then 21 is like all things are made new. It's like this is what we've been building up for. This is where all the, the good, exciting stuff is at. And, and Curtis got to teach it. But um, we're going to go into chapter 22 today, and um, my Bible pages are stuck together there. I'm going to have to guess what that says now. Okay, um, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're, I, we're only going to get through, so just so you know, when it's like almost over, I'm only in verse 2. And you're like, man, he's going to keep us here forever. We're only going to go through the first five verses this morning. Also, as we pray for the churches in the community, let's pray for uh, First Christian Church. They're on our, our list of rotation today. Um, I, I still have not, I, I got to just call the church and find out the name of the new pastor. He started uh, several months ago. Um, I've listened to some of his teachings. He teaches God's word. He's, he seems to be a really good guy. But I don't know his name, the new pastor there. But the First Christian Church over there behind um, City Market. Um, we're praying for them, and um, I'll pray for our time together. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together that we, your children, your saints, um, can, can gather together and to worship you. Lord, um, you know what's going on in our world today and in our country, and um, we ask God that your Holy Spirit would just um, saturate the world that we live in as um, we live for you. Lord, that we would be a light, and God, we would speak truth, and Lord, that we would love others the way that you've loved us, and show them and tell them, God, about your great love for them. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity, Lord, um, that affords us um, the legal right to gather together from our Constitution, and I'm grateful, God, that um, we're not afraid um, to meet even um, when the authorities say, we can't. We do so um, in, in first in obedience to you in all things, Lord, and that's what we want to do. We know that um, hell's a lot worse than COVID, and um, we want to take the time that we have to tell people about you, even if the enemy's trying to hold back the church and hold back the gospel message and, and um, to keep us apart, Lord. But we're going to keep doing what you've called us to do until you come back for us. So give us courage, give us strength, Give us favor and protection. And um, Lord, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters over at the First Christian Church today. Lord, we know they're going to be meeting at 1030 for their, for their time of gathering. Pray for the pastor there, Lord, that he would um, bring forth your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that he would also be courageous in the time that we're living in, Lord, to be bold for you. And that those who come to that church, our brothers and sisters who live in this community with us that we run into out and about throughout our, our daily lives, Lord, as they gather together, we pray, God, that they would be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, that they would have joy and, and that you would fill their hearts, Lord, with the knowledge of who you are. And we pray that you would do that again for us today as we study your word, um, closing out the, this book, Lord, of uh, prophecy that now tells us about um, things that you have already stored up for us, Lord, these sureties. Uh, these assurances of, of great things. 
Um, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of the water of life. A pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and, uh, and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, on the other side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation, nations, and there shall be no more curse. Underline that, highlight that. That's a wonderful statement right there. Shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, God dwelling there with his people and his servants, meaning us who are there, shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And he shall, or excuse me, there shall be no night there. Of course, that was uh, uh, mentioned first at the end of verse uh, chapter 21 there. And then it goes on to say that they need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And let's just, you know, we're going to get to the, only the first five verses. Let's read the rest of the chapter for, for some context. And you know what we're going to be doing next week. He said, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, here's the words of Jesus I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. Of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angels who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him uh, be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And that's a very unusual verse, verse 11, but we'll talk about that next week. And then verse 12, And behold, again, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and, and, and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, who do, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add, and to him the plagues that are written in this book. Now, for me, that's a really scary verse. And Lord, I don't want to do anything to add or take away. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, 
God shall take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Three times the Lord reminds us, he's coming, he's coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And amen. All right, so this is, if you turn over one more page, you'll see that this is the final chapter of the book of Revelation. And as I previously pointed out, this book records how everything as we currently know it, the world we live in and everything that surrounds us, right? Everything as we currently know it will come to its end. That's what the whole book of Revelation, one of the things that the whole book of Revelation is about, right? But as we have read and studied through these last three chapters, 20, 21, and now 22, we have also been told about a glorious new beginning. I love that. God just doesn't tell us how it's all going to end and then just leaves it there. He's all, he's all. I know it's all going to come to end and it's going to be gruesome. It's going to be, it's going to be awful. But, but this is the reason why. Because there's a new beginning. There's better things to come, right? A new beginning. And, and it tells us about a new creation that will be created by God after all the old and corrupt things have passed away. Now, one of the main things the, the book does, the book of Revelation does, is it focuses our attention. And if you, you've seen this, if you've been here, as we've gone through chapter 1 all the way into chapter 22 now, it, it, there's a focus and attention given, or it focuses our attention on the decisions that people make. Okay? Decisions that people have made coming up to this time of tribulation, and decisions that people make throughout the time of tribulation, and then also we know about decisions people make during the thousand-year reign when Jesus Christ is upon the earth. And in that, there's also, we see that in light of the, the decisions that people make, we see and we're told about the consequences that are attached to the decisions. In fact, the seven years of tribulation that are detailed in Revelation in, in, as a whole is in part about people exercising their free will when you think about it, right? It's a, it's a demonstration of that and, and, and how they make their final decision as to whether or not they will worship and follow God or worship and follow Satan. It's very clearly laid out in this book. And um, even, even the millennial reign, which I just mentioned, where Jesus will, will bind Satan up, set up his throne upon the earth, and rule over it for a thousand years, we see that that time is all about a person's free will decision to, to, either, to either worship and follow God or to either worship and follow Satan. And from our study back in chapter 20 a couple weeks ago, we know that at the end of that thousand-year reign, right, many will choose to forsake God, even after all that perfectness that is upon the earth at that time with Christ ruling and reigning, and in doing so, they're going to follow Satan, and they're going to, as he leads a rebellion, and they're going to they're rise up against the rule of Jesus. Again, about people's decisions, and then the consequences that come along with that, and, and the free will that God gives us to, 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 to exercise our choices. And so in this last chapter, we see that at the end, okay, get this, at, when the end finally comes, what we see as we look at that in light of where we're going is that every single person will have made their decision at this point. Every single person will have made their decision. Their mind will, be, their mind will have been made up. And, and, we're, and, 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 and we're reminded of the, the permanent destination, right, 
of, uh, and a grim outcome for those who have made that decision or who will make that decision to re- reject Jesus. Um, and, and we're told more about the final destination in this glorious future for those of us who have chosen to worship Jesus and to follow after him. So if you were here last Sunday when Curtis um, taught through chapter 21, you already know um, some about this final place of destination um, for those who choose uh, Jesus. And there's some details that were given back in chapter 21, some good stuff, some exciting things to be looking forward to. And um, we're told about um, this final destination. It's given the name the New Jerusalem, right? And in, ch- in chapter 21, it tells us that about not only about what it is called, but about who will be living there specifically. Uh, there will be some who will and some who will not. And it's, uh, it's a place of beauty, it's a place of majesty, and it's declared back in chapter 21 in detail. But more importantly, when we take the whole picture of what we're reading now, what we're told is we're told about God's presence being there. That's really cool. It's really, really cool. It's, 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 um, it's better than anything else. God will be there um, in this new Jerusalem. It's a place where man, in other words, will once again be able to dwell with his creator, guys. And as we continue on and look at these first five verses of chapter 22, really what we're now, we're giving like this glimpse of what is on the inside of this future dwelling place of the children of God. And I want to remind you, the Bible tells us that we see dimly right now. And even the things that God has shown to us and revealed to us is just a glimpse. And, and, and so let your imagination run wild within the context of God's God's word, because God, it tells us that God does exceedingly and, and more abundantly than what we could ever hope or imagine or ever think. And, and I think it's a, a good thing to do when we meditate on God's word in relationship to what's um, coming up for us, because you're not going to, you're, you're, what God's got for us in the context of what we read here as we let our imagination wander, it's not like you're going to get your hopes up and somehow be disappointed. It's still going to be greater than what you can ever hope or imagine. And that's a pretty awesome thing. So in verse 1, back in chapter 22, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its streets, on either side, verse 2, of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, and each tree yielded its fruits every month, and the leaves and the trees were for the healing of the nation. I want to stop there, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in these first two verses. And even though there's just this, these real brief mentions of these, these two things that are going to be inside the New Jerusalem, there's some profound stuff wrapped up around what we're reading here. And, and back in chapter 21, we're told that when God makes all things new, he's going to remove right the corruption uh, um, that man's sin has brought upon the original creation, which we are now living in today. Remember, in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that the whole, it says, the whole creation was affected in a negative way because, because um, it became tarnished by man's sin, which brought in death. You know, I was, I've had the good fortune in the last couple of weeks to fix a lot of things around my house that keep breaking. And sometimes I was, walk- last night I was walking, uh, yesterday evening, it was a 
I don't want to go into all what is, but I was walking down the stairs because I keep my tools downstairs right now. I was walking down the stairs and I'm like, God, all I ever do is fix broken things. And, and I don't know if you've ever felt like that, guys, ladies, maybe you too. But, you know, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to the day when stuff stops breaking. You know, we are, we are in a world that is fallen, and we are broken people. We have broken hearts. We have broken minds and all of these things. And, and, and even, even in, the, in the sense of the creation, things around us fall apart. They break. You know, I, I think our washing machine is like 15 years, maybe longer than that, 17 years or something like that old. And, and I don't know why it keeps breaking, but it, I keep fixing it. But, and, and there's other things, but I'm looking forward to the day like when um, we live in a world, we live in this new place that God creates where our sin is no longer tarnishing what God has made. Um, because in that, what we know is, is, is there's death, there's destruction, and that's what we're living with. And, and as, a result of, of, as, as a result of that, we, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, it tells us that all of creation, I was just a little bit of groaning there, but all of creation groans, it says, and labors with birth pangs as it waits for the day when it'll be delivered from the bondage of corruption, and, and this day of future deliverance, when the whole uh, creation will experience the regenerating power of God that um, restores ultimately what man has lost, is what we're now reading about. That's why I'm saying, let your mind wander. I'm like, I'm, first thing I'm thinking of is, no more broken washing machines. My wife is probably going, no more washing machines. <laughs> you know, I do laundry too, but... You know, that's like one of our least favorite chores because it seems like there's, you're never done, right? It gets like this endless cycle. And, and, and this, this, this day of future deliverance is what we're reading about. And another example of this is, is um, uh, where God restores what has been lost. Okay, think about it in regards to what we know about God's Word and how what God gave man when he created everything um, is that... Um, uh, we, another sign of what's being restored to us about what's lost is what we read here in verse 1. This river of life. It was lost. It was lost to mankind, this river of life. And this is made clear when we look back to the book of, of Genesis. In, in Genesis chapter 2. And in that chapter, we're told that in, the, in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, there was water, a river of water that went um, out uh, to water the garden. And from there... It flowed out of the garden, and it would part it into four different ways. Go read about it. It's pretty cool. However, this, this river of life along with the Garden of Eden, we know, which was originally where the, the, this tree of life that we're reading about also was housed, that it was all lost, and it was all lost to mankind as a result of sin, of man's sin. And we know that when man sinned, that God, God came and he drove man out of the garden, and, and, and he set an angel with a flaming sword at the border to keep man out. And, and we, we might think that, that it was an act of like God's anger or punishment for, for, for um, what man had done. But we see when we put all these things in context that it was actually an act of God's mercy and an act of God's grace that he kept these things from us 
at that time and, and would restore it at, at a future time, um, mainly after the, the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who would be the one who would make all things new, and then ultimately the, the, the new world after all sin has been taken away and all of its effects are nullified. And, um, but in this new Jerusalem, like we're talking about, there will be a um, river that contains the water of life. And the river flows out of a fountain of life, is what we know, and um, it's located at the throne of God. Now think about that imagery, the very throne of God there in the city of Jerusalem, the new city of Jerusalem, and from God's throne flows water of life that goes, or is the fountain of life uh, and flowing um, into a river of life. And and um, according to what we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, right, back when Curtis was teaching last week, we have chosen Jesus. We're going to be able to drink freely from this river. Crystal clear. And clearly this river will be a real thing in a real place, but it also is symbolic to us because ultimately what it symbolizes is how every desire and how every need that we have will completely in eternally be satisfied by God at this time in this place. Every need, every desire we have will be completely and eternally satisfied by God. And according to Psalm 46, verse 4, I, I love this connection. I, it says, the river will make us glad. The river will make us glad. It says this, there is a river in Psalm 46, verse 4, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. And when I, when I studied this verse out, I looked up the Hebrew word glad, and it's the word shamak. And in looking it up and studying it out, I discovered this, it refers specifically to a person's response to rejoice. Pretty cool. In other words, this feeling of gladness, now think about that, this feeling of gladness that causes us to rejoice is the result of being satisfied or content. And in light of this, we once again see how God is the only one who can satisfy us. We know this, but we see it again for all eternity. The only one who can bring lasting contentment into our lives. And the point is, heaven in this new creation, which is, is the destination for those who have chosen Jesus, listen, it's going to be an eternal place of contentment. Imagine that. A place, a perfect place where we are always satisfied. But the fact of the matter is, is that we don't have to wait. You guys know this. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven in order to experience this God-given contentment. It's made available to us now. And, and, and obviously, it won't be, it's not eternal like it will be because we live in this fallen world still, but we can receive it right now while we're still living in this imperfect place, guys. The Apostle Paul wrote about this when he said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, he said this, he said, not that I am speaking of, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound and in any and every circumstances, circumstance. He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. That's the secret. And so when writing to the Philippians, Paul explains that he had learned how to be content. And in light of this, we can discern that Paul had not always been content, right? And that there was a time when his contentment was determined by his circumstances or by the things that he had. And I think this is something that we can all relate to as we can find ourselves in places where our contentment has or is based upon what we have or what we want or what we think we need or, or, or whether or not our situation is favorable or liking to our standard. And yet Paul tells us that he learned that through his faith in Jesus that he was strengthened and, and, in, and that his contentment in that space did not diminish even though the situations and circumstances were constantly changing. Now, I don't think this was in any admission that Paul was always content. He's just saying, I learned how. I've learned how. And, and, and we know how, but if you're like me, it's like I can, I can enter into this place of contentment that Christ offers and strengthens me in and walk in that, and it's not circumstantial, but there are other times when I'm, I'm, I'm over here too, right? And, and I'm upset about the COVID or, or, or whatever, my washing machine or whatever else is going on in life, and I think that my contentment is somehow going to, I'll be content of these things were just different. And so Paul tells us this cool thing that, that's, that, that's kind of a, a foretelling or a, a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, and we can experience that kind, of, that kind of heavenly bliss now, is what we're told, in part. And, and this should remind us, I think, of the time when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. I love that story. And you guys know it's in John chapter 4, and what Jesus said to her when, when she was when she was talking about, you know, Jesus was talking about spiritual things and they're there at the well and she's drawing water and, and he speaks and he says to her, drinks water, drinks of this water, speaking of the well, he said, they're going to thirst again, right? Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. And, and, and of course, as spiritual, we drink of these things that can offer us a, a temporary contentment, right? When we have what we want, what we, we're in the circumstances the way we are, but they're temporary, they're, they're not eternal, but Jesus said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, he will never thirst again. And of course she said, give me that water. That's the one that I want. Guys, that's the water we want. We need to see what well we're drinking from in this life that we're living in until the day comes when, when we can drink from the, the water of life that flows from the, 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 the throne of God. But it's still flowing now through the Holy Spirit and into our lives. It's what are we drinking of? And in this instance, we know that Jesus, when he was speaking to the woman, he was referring to himself as being that water. He said, I am, right? Eight times, seven times in the book of John. And, and he speaks to himself about being living water. And he refers to himself as water. And we need to drink this in, and Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 35, in relationship to our faith. He says, whoever believes in me will never thirst again. Believes in me. 
And the point is, is if we're not feeling content, and I think we all have a sense of that at times, and even more so with the way things are in the world that we're living in right now, a lot of the fears and anxieties that are coming with the unknowns that are coming down the road, and and some of the things that are affecting us right now, but if we're not feeling content, um, it's because we ultimately haven't put our hope and our faith and trust in God in the way that we should. Matter of fact, we put it in something other than Jesus. That's what it boils down to. It's something that we've wrongly believed will make us glad, cause us to rejoice, right? Or something that might make us feel whole or something that might make us feel complete. Maybe it's something we've recently bought. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job promotion or maybe it's a mind or mood-altering substance, but at best, all of these things, all they can ever do, and you guys know this, is provide a temporary pleasure, a um, situational contentment that is sure to pass away when things change. And the reality is, is when these things fail, here's the, here's the lie of the enemy, is that when these things fail, they leave us unsatisfied. They leave us unfulfilled. And, and here's the key, in, in with an even greater thirst. You know, we think we're drinking a big glass of water and, and the enemy's making it look good and appealing and it's like you just taking, it's full of sand and you just don't see it. Dirt, dust, and you're just taking it in, taking it in, taking it in. And we're even more thirsty than, than when we began in that spot. So instead of, instead of buying something new, instead of trying to change the relationship, instead of trying to get more recognition, or instead of, instead of consuming more of whatever the world can offer to us, we should be con- coming to Jesus, like Paul says, who will strengthen us and who will quench the thirst that we have. Then and only then will we feel satisfied and content no matter what the situation is that we find ourselves in. Speaking about this, Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. This is uh, a, a, a translation. I like the way it reads. I think it's the New American Standard, but I usually don't reference that, that um, translation. But I, lo- I like the way that it, it words it. It says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsenses <laughs> that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. So you are also complete. Think about that word. You are also complete. What does that mean? Lacking nothing, right? You are complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and every authority. All right, now if we look at verse 2, it tells us that also in this new Jerusalem, there's going to be the tree of life, the river of life and the tree of life. And this is the same tree of life also spoken of back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And again in Genesis chapter 3, verse, verse 22, where we're told that this tree, now think about this, this tree of life was part of the reason, and it tells us in chapter 3 verse 22 of the book of Genesis, part of the reason for why man was driven out and then kept out of the Garden of Eden after he rebelled against God. Remember, when God created the garden, he placed two special trees, right? 
Two special trees in the midst of it is what we're told. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the forbidden tree. And God told man that, that um, if he was to eat from this tree, then he would surely die. And we know that Adam and Eve, they did eat from this tree. And when they sinned, Death and all of its corruption, the tarnishing, right, entered in. But because God had a desire and a plan, God had a desire and a plan to save us from sin and from death, what he did, part of that plan, is he removed Adam and Eve from the garden. He drove them out of the garden. Why? So that man could not eat from this tree of life and in, at that time, and, and, and by doing so, then preserve the immortality of his body in a fallen and corrupted state or condition. But because death has been defeated at the cross of Calvary through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and because the curse of sin will be removed by God, God will give us back this tree of life when he makes all things new. And apparently these trees of life, there's not just going to be one, they're going to fill the new Jerusalem, right? They're going to be on the streets and they're going to line the banks of the river of, uh, of life. And, and I want to point out, I love this part of it, that these trees will produce 12 different kinds of fruit, we're told. <laughs> a different fruit for each month of the year. And um, the fact that 12 months are mentioned, I think what it does is illustrate that um, even in eternity, will we be living within some reality of time, even though it may not be like we know it now. And, and if you have conversations with people, some people think that, that eternity for us is outside of time. There is no sense of time. Um, I to me, I, I, I don't like that thought. Um, so when I read stuff like this, this is comforting to me. And, uh, but I don't mention this to, to kind of make a theological point other than to point us towards God because I mention this to point out the fact that really, guys, God's the only one that lives outside of time. Now think about that into relationship to who he is. He lives, with, he lives outside of time, meaning God alone is without, like the Bible says, he's without beginning. And he's without an end. And even though he's described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, as the ancient of days, God does not grow old. He has always been and he will always be, and this is just one of the mind-blowing attributes that sets him apart as God. And this God, who always has and who will always be, is going to dwell with us. Verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name will be on their forehead, and they shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And of course, Jesus tells us, I am the light, and the light of the world. And we know is that um, light drives out darkness. And I can't even begin to describe to you the fullness of what it will mean when there's no more curse. I wish I could. That's why I told you to use your imagination. And this is because, guys, think about it. Think about all your senses and what God's given us to discern the world around us, what we see, what we smell, what we hear, what we think, 
what we imagine, what we can touch physically, what we can feel emotionally, everything is currently being negatively affected by the curse. I've heard one guy speculate on this is is some of the mind-blowing things and talking about the senses that we now have that are tarnished because of of sin, corrupted because of sin, uh, diminished because of sin. He says, think about colors. And I don't know if this is our true knots, it's the imagination. You know, but we see red, we see blue, right? We can we discern it with one sense. Imagine if all of our senses could partake in what red is smelling red, hearing red, tasting red. I think there's some validity to that. And, and, and um, be like, whoa, man. You know, <laughs> not in that kind of way. <laughs> but it's going to be, when God makes it back to the way that it was, a new thing, it's going to be Phenomenal. Because it's no longer going to be affected by the curse. But when it comes, guys, to doing away with this curse, the most important thing to understand is is that um, when the curse is gone, there's going to be no more sin, no more death, and no more suffering. Everything would be perfect if it is returned back to the way that God originally created, the way that God had intended it to be. But I believe the best thing that will come as a result of the curse being no more is spoken to us in verse 4, right? Where it says that we will see God face to face. Face to face. And this is an awesome thing considering that all of us who believe in and follow after God desire to see more of God, do we not? But unless we understand that being in the unobstructed presence of God is what we've been designed for. Let me say that again. Unless we understand that being in the unobstructed presence of God is what we've been designed for, guys, we're never fully going to realize the greatness of what being in his presence truly means. Doing what we've been created to do. Without any obstruction. And the Bible tells us about many great men of the Bible who expressed this desire to be in God's presence, to see his face. But because all men live under the curse ever since the beginning of the fall and live in this fallen state of corruption, it's never been possible. But God says it's going to, there's coming a time. And we know that even Moses is probably the most detailed account of it. Moses, who was called the friend of God. He was not, even he was not allowed to see the face of God even though he asked. And when he asked God to do so, God said this in Exodus chapter 33, verses 19 through 22. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said to Moses, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And we know that even with just seeing that little bit of the glory of God is that like Moses' face almost melted off. 
not literally, but he was like shiny for a long time afterwards. You know, the kind of glory was just reflecting and beaming off of him. And it's pretty awesome we consider that not even Moses was able to see God's face in this life. Yet for those of us, here's the mind-blowing thing, for those of us who choose to follow Jesus, for those of us who choose to worship him as Lord, our future destiny is to have perfect, intimate fellowship with God. To see him face to face and to see him as he is. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us? that we should now be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Charles Spurgeon is, is, is one man uh, that I look up to and read a lot of um, his stuff. And he said this. He wrote about this very thing, and he said this. He said, by which I understand two things. Nobody writes like this anymore. By which I understand two things. First, quote, that they shall literally and physically, with their risen bodies, actually look into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties will, will, shall be enlarged so, that they, so that, that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart, soul, and character of Christ so as to understand Him, His work, His love, His all in all as they, we, never understood him before. You see, heaven is not so much about what we get as it is about how we are going to be changed. Who we are with and what we will be doing. And when we finally get to our eternal destination, we'll be free from the curse and we will be with God who will fill us with a gladness that moves us to rejoice, to celebrate, and to give praise. And guys, these are just some of the, the things that we will be doing, but it's clear by what we heard in verse 3. Now think about this in relationship to the life that we've been called to live now. Everything now is preparation for what's to come, is it not? And in verse 3 it says we're what? We're going to be there doing what? We're referred to as the servants of God. We're going to be serving in this new creation. We talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about you know, ruling and reigning with Christ and having dominion over this earth alongside him under his authority. And, and we, there's, there's, it's gonna, I don't know exactly what this all means, but we're going to be the servants of God. We're going to be serving him. This is also an aspect of our destiny. And I think that this truth should encourage us as we seek to faithfully serve Jesus today. And even though there are many challenges to being the faithful servant that we 
Servant, we need to remember that serving Jesus in doing what He commands us to do, as Scripture tells us, is not a burdensome thing. In fact, it's a joy. It's a pleasure to serve Jesus when it's rooted and founded in love. When you're in love with Him. And, 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 and serving with a heart that is grateful, because it's an attitude of gratitude that flows out of a love. It's this, this serving with a heart that is grateful for what God has done and, and for what He has promised to us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 and 3, it says this. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. When we do what He's commanded us to do. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. He's instructed us. He's commanded us. He's shown us a way. And serving Jesus and seeing him face to face is both part of a Christian's eternal destiny. But according to verse 4, another aspect of our destiny is to have the name of God written on our forehead, right? And the point of this is simple. is to show that we're God's possession. It's a mark of ownership. And it's just like what we do when we place all kinds of identifying marks, including our own names, on things that are of value to us. And God does so. This morning I saw Ron come get a Sharpie off of the, off of the uh, information counter. And he had his in-ear headset. And he was writing his initials or his name. Ron, don't touch under penalty of death. No, he didn't write all that other stuff. But, but it's like God's going to take a Sharpie, probably something a little more permanent, <laughs> And you're going to write on your forehead. Because he sees us as valuable, important. Remember, Scripture tells us that we've been purchased not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Valuable. And right now, we who worship and follow Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, right now we have a mark right? God's written on us with His Holy Spirit. A seal, it says. Marked with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance until the day of redemption comes. God's saying, He's mine. She's mine. But we know that when we get to heaven, we will be marked with the very name of God. And this mark, guys, it's not so God can look at us and be reminded that, that we're His, since He knows, and He'll never forget us, Right? He's all, which one's mine? Uh, that's not how it is. On the contrary, his name will be written on us to remind us that we are his and that he has chosen us to be his. Ephesians chapter three verses, um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, we're reminded of this saying. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, here's the key, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he has predestined us for adoptions as son through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. God chose you for salvation. 
pretty cool. God has chosen each one of us, is what this tells us, for salvation through Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. And His desire is for us to remember that we are His. I'm His. I'm His favorite, too, by the way. (laughs) And this is a great and wonderful thing. But the, the better and more amazing thing is the fact, I love this, is that the choosing happened before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? That means it was before you could do any good thing or any bad thing. Meaning the choosing was in accordance wholly to his love for us, according to his will, according to his grace, according to his plan. And so God did not, God did not choose to save us out of duty. It's like, oh, he finally made it. I got I to gotta take him now. It's like some schoolyard pick. The last one left. I'm on, I guess I'm on your team. And sometimes we feel like that. That's not how it is. He didn't choose us or save us out of duty because he had to. He chose us to save us out of his desire for us. And he wanted to save us because he wants us to be a part of his family, a part of his kingdom, a part of this eternal hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for these wonderful words of encouragement and the hope that's found here. These reminders, Lord, of of what you're going to restore to us, but more so of who you are and how you see us even today. Lord, we ask and pray that you would live through us, that even now we would be content and glad, Lord, Fill us with gladness. We may rejoice and worship you in this world, Lord, where so many things aren't worth rejoicing in or for. But even when there's nothing in this world, Lord, worth rejoicing about, there's always you that is worthy and more than worthy of our worship and our praise. And you fill our hearts with joy. And we pray you would do that again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand? Of the goodness of God. 